Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast, a melting pot of stories, hopefully humor, and interviews from all over the bicycle-loving world. Today, Nicole Marie Davidson, author of Under the French Blue Sky, shares one of her many stories about riding the routes of the Tour de France, and she takes us through following the final route of one of our shared tragic heroes, the Lake Tom Simpson. Then, why does a simple stop for a water bottle refill change a lot. Then a shout out to Ben from the Behind the Handlebars podcast as he shares a tale from the trails of Vermont. A huge thank you to all the folks who have downloaded the podcast. We're over 15,000 in all 50 states and over 50 countries. I know you have a lot of different podcasts to choose from and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. If you're a baseball fan, you're probably not going to be able to play an inning in Fenway. If you're an NFL fan, you're probably not going to be allowed to run plays in Denver's Mile High Stadium. But if you're a cycling fan, you can ride on the same roads as the gods of cycling. All you have to do is get there and you can follow in the wheels of any grade from any era. You can go right now and ride Greg LeMond's training routes. You can retrace the streets from Graham Obrey's bike messenger days. You can also ride most of the routes of the Giro, the Tour de France, and Paris-Roubaix. Even the most non-conformist cyclists have a few cells in their body that perk up with a romantic fantasy of the Tour de France. Whether it's from the historical age prior to World War II, the golden age of the 50s and 60s, or the silver age of the 70s and 80s, deep in their heart of hearts, even if they've never watched it, Many cyclists dream of going to the great places. I'd love to ride the mountain my bike is named after. I have an Alpe d'Huez. The villages, the countryside, the obligatory selfie with El Diablo. And for so many people, the legendary road on Ventoux. Nicole Marie Davidson shares her pilgrimage to this mountain and the story of Tom Simpson, who in 1967 died while trying to cycle the mountain. My name is Nicole Davison, and I am currently from Northern Virginia, soon to be from somewhere in France. So I'm not entirely sure how the grand idea of opening a bike shop uh, happened, especially in the small town where we opened it. We had worked at River City Bicycles uh, for Dave Gettler, the amazing Dave Gettler in Portland, Oregon, for a short amount of time. That was my first bike shop or bike industry experience, really. I had none before that. My husband, Scott, had been a bike mechanic off and on throughout his career since 1990. So cycling was really his thing, quote unquote. And I, at some point, got tired of being left behind on these rides, these adventures. And he would come back just all smiles and full of stories. And it didn't take long for me to say, okay, that's it. You're not going on any more rides without me. And uh, it just blew up from there my love of cycling so we 
had some personal reasons for, for needing to come back to Virginia, uh, some family obligations. And we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We, we didn't really think anybody would hire us. And <laughs> so uh, why not? Why not just open a bike shop um, in a small town 44 miles from D.C.? It seemed like a good idea because we had 300 miles of gravel roads right from the shop door. Some really beautiful rural riding. There really wasn't anything like the bicycle shop, coffee shop combo out there at the time. And coming from Portland, Oregon, where it was nearly every shop, uh, the culture was so prevalent and it just seemed natural. So that's how we ended up starting Bicycles and Coffee. Uh, it was a simple desire to enjoy both, to love what we did every day as a job, and as an excuse to, to ride our bicycles, really. Yeah. Then in November of 2015, I discovered the opportunity, if that's what you want to call it, to ride the entire Tour de France route. It all happened because of one tweet. It was a random swipe, uh, a bored random swipe, while Scott was cleaning the espresso machine at the end of a day, actually at the end of a rainy, cold, boring day in the shop. And I came across this one line that said, do you think you can ride the Tour de France? And of course, I thought I could ride the Tour de France. Who doesn't? It was a bit tongue-in-cheek, really. I had always been a fan of the tour, even before I was a cyclist. It was one of the things that my then-boyfriend, now-husband, and I did together was to watch the Tour de France. Even when I wasn't into cycling, I loved the rolling drama, the human drama, the human struggle, the travelogue, the history lesson that is the tour on television. So the opportunity to ride, I didn't know at the time every kilometer of the tour. I thought maybe some truncated stages here and there, a luxury cycling vacation, if you will. Uh, I thought that would be great, but, but that's not what it was at all. <laughs> I pompously turned to my husband, Scott, and said, do you mind watching the shop for me? while I go and ride the Tour de France. And that didn't go over well at all. Absolutely not was his answer. You go, I go. Which was an even better idea than me going alone. And that's how it started. That attraction to want to visit these places in France is the very essence of why the tour exists. Even if you're not a fan of cycling, the tour does draw you in, which is the very point. The founders of the tour over a hundred years ago created this race in an effort to encourage people to see their country, to see France and all its variety. It wasn't uncommon for somebody living in, say, a village in Normandy or a village in Provence to have never left that village for their entire lives. So the organizers of the tour, as a side note, it was intended to sell more newspapers. But 
it it was a way to encourage people to get in their car and drive around. It was a literal tour of France and to explore this beautiful, dynamic country that they lived in. I don't think that the organizers ever expected for it to become the giant that it is today. So, sure, there were numerous monuments of mountains that I wanted to see. Tourmalet uh, was one of them, Bantu for sure. These epic places that you read about in books or you see on the television screen, they just move you to emotion and being able to see them in real life did that tenfold. It, it was uh, a very strange era for, for cycling. I think Tom Simpson and, and others like him were becoming superstars, not just on a, on a local level, not just French superstars, but the tour had been opened up for several decades already by Tom's time to international cyclists. In the very beginning, it was a French-only race, and, and then cyclists from England and Belgium and the Netherlands and even the U.S. began to sign up for this epic race. So Tom was a hero, not just to fellow Brits, but really to people all over the world. I think there was really beginning to be this immense pressure from not just his fans, but his team and sponsors, family and himself, really, to, to be the best of the best. Let's not forget how difficult the tour really is. And maybe some would say really was. You'll hear people argue that the tour today is nothing like the tour of Tom's time. I think Tom and other racers of his era would have agreed that their tour was nothing like the tour of the men that came before them. The tour was huge. In fact, 2018 is surprisingly one of the shortest Tours de France on record. So these were epic, epic stages uh, over 21 days, 23 days, two rest days. So by the time the tour reached Vantu, which would have come later, second week at least, the easy stages coming nine days before the first rest day, and then the epic climbs coming in week two and week three to test tired legs and tired souls. This stage would have really been the turning point for the race. Everything was riding on Tom Simpson being first to the top of Von Two. And if you've only ever seen Von Two on television or if you've only ever read about Von Two in books, it is this colossal pile of rocks just appearing out of the landscape. For me, it was the most terrifying stage of the entire tour. That's saying a lot, considering the stages were 100 plus miles almost every day, the longest stage being 150 miles. Now in Tom's time, those 150 mile plus stages weren't uncommon. And I wasn't even racing. I got the luxury of fully stocked rest stops and bathroom breaks and breaks in the shade and as much water as I, as I needed. Tom didn't have that. And I think the weather may have been the same as the day I summited. It was hot, it was searing hot. So hot that 
the tarmac literally melts beneath your tires. Something that I had heard or read and, and thought was just legend, just um, maybe television commentators or pro cyclists sort of embellishing this fact of this popping and cracking tarmac just to make us get excited and sort of feel like this is not anything that us mere mortals could accomplish. But it, it's true. The tarmac gets so hot, it moves under your tires. It pops, it crackles, and it's doing all this as a reminder just how brutally hot it can be. Riding through the forest before you get to the open expanses of this moonscape that is Vontu, there is no air. At least there wasn't on the day that I rode it, and I'm fairly certain it was the same on Tom's day. There was no air moving through what is nicknamed the Windy Mountain. Um, we didn't have this legendary headwind bringing us to a near standstill as we climbed. I would have loved for any any whiff of breeze to cool the air, but there was none. So when you consider that Tom was under this immense pressure to perform, to be first to the summit, to secure a victory on this stage that may very well have secured his overall win, there, there was a lot of pressure riding on this man. And I think so much pressure that, like many of his time, and unfortunately like many of our time still, there was this pressure to perform, and, and so doing it naturally was just not an option. So Tom did succumb to um, doping, is, is really the best word. It's an ugly word, but it's the best word for it. And doping in his day uh, meant alcohol, it meant drugs, amphetamines specifically. Pretty much anything that he could ingest to help propel him faster and stronger than his competitors. He did this repeatedly, not just on this stage, but on stages prior. And combined with the sheer ex exhaustion that comes with riding multiple days, over 100 miles a day at race pace, and then the searing heat that can happen on this mountain in the summertime. You know, this is mid-July. This is the south of France. This is an exposed mountainscape under the burning sun. This is not a good formula for success or health of a human being that's already being pushed to his limits. So by the time you get past the forest, you get to Chalet Renard, the business end really is done. But you don't think that because now all you can see is this moonscape. And Von Tu looks perpetually blanketed in snow or ash like at some sleeping hulk of volcano, but it's not. It's, it's very unusual. It's, it's devoid of anything green, devoid of any life. Very strange. Even though the hardest bits of the climb are now behind you, your brain doesn't allow you to think that because all you can see is the weather station way up high, never seeming to get any closer, no matter how many switchbacks you conquer. The road just keeps bending, and the right side is the sheer face of the mountain. The left side is nothing. It's really beautiful, but almost, almost haunting. 
And the day that I rode, the day that I climbed Vontu, I, I was fortunate enough to have a fairly empty road. It was me and that mountain, an occasional cyclist descending, and we would nod, sort of a knowing hello. <laughs> and the occasional Tour de France fan who was already staking their claim for a good spot. Now keep in mind, this was a week before the professional peloton would come through. So there were a few caravans. There was a German man sitting out wearing nothing but some shorts and flip-flops. And he was drinking a beer. And I remember looking at him and smiling and nodding. And he gave me sort of a half-hearted allay. Go on, go on, he said, in German. So I'm assuming that's what he was saying. And I remember asking him for a sip of his beer. And I don't speak German. And I doubt that he spoke much English. But I think the conversation, as brief as it was, was understood. And he shook his head, no, uh-uh, I'm not going to share my beer, but go on with you. So I laughed and kept pedaling. And then I passed Tom's memorial, and I thought about stopping on the way up. But I was tired, and I was thirsty, and I was out of water. And that station at the top, that symbol of the summit, was literally not getting any closer. So I put... I put Tom out of my mind just for a moment and kept pedaling, pedaling towards the summit. But on the way back, I knew it was something that I had to do because Tom was on my mind for, for many days leading up to Vontu and certainly passing the memorial out of, out of the right side of my vision. You, you can't mistake it. You can't miss it. And you really can't get it off your mind. So on the way back down, I pulled over and uh, I expected... I expected it to be touching. I, I expected it to be a brief visit. I would read the words written on the memorial and, and I would remember what I had read about Tom <clears throat> and I would go on my way, but, but that's, not, that's not what happened at all. It really turned into a defining moment for me, a defining moment of my tour. And um, really, sort of hit me a lot harder than, than I expected. And I think, so, so I should back up. If, if you don't know the, the ending to Tom's story, it, it was not a happy one. About two kilometers from the summit, Tom started weaving back and forth across the road, sweating profusely and, and looking worse for wear. And he collapsed onto the, to the hot tarmac and spectators ran to him and they they asked him what was wrong and they asked him if he was okay and the only words as legend has it that came out of tom's mouth was put me back on my bike put me back on my bike that was it not help not i'm suffering not i'm dying even but put me back on my bike because the drive the urge to get to that summit was so strong that's the only thing that mattered to him and so they did they they managed to to sort of pour him back on on his waiting bicycle and he managed to turn over the cranks a few more times and then he collapsed again and and that was the end of his race and and sadly the end of his life So why is this tragic hero, Tom Simpson, beloved by so many people, even people who would turn their noses at the modern doping scandals? Well, someone wrote a book once that said it's not about the bike, 
And I think that applies here. It's not about the drugs or doping. It's about the person behind that. I think Tom's a lot more likable than some because you can identify with him. His last words were a sentiment that every cyclist can identify with. It's how many of us would like to go on our bikes. If we have to go, put us on our bikes before we go. I get goosebumps every time I hear it. I feel fortunate, and I know that you probably do too, and many other cyclists out there who understand the power of not just those words, but the connection to our bicycles. We don't all as cyclists get to that place. And so I think you have to admit to feeling fortunate to have reached that point in your cycling career, whether you're a professional or an amateur or an enthusiast, to understand, have that very knowledge of that connection. For me, there will always be a before Vontu and an after Vontu. The after Vontu is a cyclist who very much understands that connection, what those words meant, how valuable that feeling is of loving your bike and loving your sport so much that you are willing to destroy yourself. You know, maybe we're pushing these men too hard and too far, and they are, are quite willingly being pushed because of their love of the sport and their love of the bicycle. I feel perhaps maybe we're exploiting that love somewhat. You know, it's no secret that this is big business now. There's a lot of money in this industry. There are a lot of sponsors. It's complicated, <laughs> but I think it's supposed to be. You know, you, you take something that's so simple. I, I mean, what is a bicycle? Two triangles and two wheels, and you plop on a human that has two legs and two arms, one heart and one brain, but it's not that simple. And I think something like the Tour de France proves that. You know, for, for those people who just catch a stage here and there on television or just know about it because there's a report in a newspaper or in a magazine, it just seems like a bunch of overpaid young men riding around France on their bikes. That's it. That's all it is. But it isn't, is it? It, it, it isn't. It wasn't for Tom, and it certainly wasn't for me. And any of us, if we love cycling, know just how deep this thing goes. So the Tom Simpson Memorial is, is really is really simple. It blends in beautifully with the scree and the bare rock and its darkness and simplicity uh, I think is intentional. It's not a building, it's a marker. It is very reminiscent of a tombstone. In 2016 when I visited it, it, it was surrounded in mementos and gifts and, and little bits and bobs of water bottles and, and cycling caps and little stones and whatnot, just tokens of appreciation from fans. I did sort of gently reach out and just softly laid my fingers across his name and read the line written by his daughters about him being a loving father. And, and that's really when I sort of broke down because there's just so much emotion, and I think had I just visited the memorial as a fan, if I had just ridden up Von Two on a lark because it was a bucket list item, I'm not sure that it would have moved me the same way. 
I've seen photos of other people grinning, smiling, visiting under much more, I don't know, happy terms. And I, I often wondered how this couldn't have moved them like it moved me. And I think it's different for everybody, but this wasn't a lark. I mean, I, I was visiting this memorial after many days of riding the tour. And not only was I sad and, and moved as a daughter, moved by those words, it was like unloading all the nerves and fear and, and not just the sadness. It, there, there were tears of joy, but it was just this big exhale. Like, I had made it. I had made it. There was this grateful guilt, if you will, that I had just been able to close those final kilometers, to make it to the summit of this mountain that Tom had given his life for. And that's a very powerful thing. That's a very powerful thing, considering the sacrifice that he made to get to the top because he didn't make it and knowing that I had, I was grateful and, and a little guilty for it. It's moving. And I encourage anybody, anybody who is a fan of cycling um, or a fan of Tom or a fan of just the human struggle to visit. We then talked about the pretty sweet downhill that came afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's not a bummer. That's not a bummer. And with, with tears in my eyes and a little lightness of step, uh, I did get back on my bike. And, and it was a sweet, it was a sweet downhill. And, and it makes the whole experience worth it. The stupid grin stretched from ear to ear as I held on for dear life in the drops, just flying downhill. Everything that you feel to get to the top of on two, suddenly the reward is there, right? I had the road to myself and, and I remember absolutely time trialing my way to the bottom. I don't know if I've ever gone so fast and had so much fun. I, I do remember passing fellow cyclists who were a part of our tour on the way up and just giving them a nod and a grin and this silent message of, trust me, it's all going to be worth it. And it was. It was. It, I left nothing in the tank. And you know the old saying, and, and for people who don't, I'll, I'll repeat it. A cyclist has a, bo a book of matches, right? And to burn a match means to expel this immense energy. You do that and you've burned up the match. Well, you only have so many of those. And so it would be wise to retain a match or two for when you need it. But I, I didn't. I burned every match in my matchbook that day. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> you should um, you should definitely take a trip. You may be the first person I've talked to who's done the ride. I mean, I know a lot of people <laughs> who've got it on their bucket list, but it really is kind of rare in the states. It's, it's something everyone knows about, but it's not commonly done. You know, you could talk to a hundred cyclists, and maybe one of them has actually ridden it. So it's it's really nice to get a chance to talk to you about it. My pleasure. <laughs> She's written a book on all of her adventures following the tour route. 
So the book is called Under the French Blue Sky, The Diary of a Grand Tour Adventure by Nicole Marie Davison. It is available on Amazon. I should mention that every copy sold, the entire amount is used to meet our fundraising goals for the 2018 tour, which we'll do one week ahead of the pros, so starting July 1st of this year. And we're raising money for the William Waits Memorial Trust. If you'd like to check out her and her husband's adventures in France, you can check out their new Instagram account at Capra Cyclista. Sometimes in life, you meet difficult people who challenge you on several levels. Less often, you meet amazing people who also challenge you, but to be more amazing. As cyclists, we are on the trails, in the skate parks, and on the roads, interacting with more people than most folks. Sometimes we meet those difficult people who challenge our patients by charging us to use restrooms, coal rolling us at stoplights, and those who yell at us. Other times, if we bother to notice, there are those who give us more than three feet as they pass us or who offer us a tea break on a long tour, and who stop to see if we need an extra tube while we're on the side fixing a flat. To me, these people are examples that remind me to be more kind. Ironically, across the street from a convenience store that tried to charge me three bucks for a regular size candy bar, I met one of these amazing people. She didn't want me to use her name or to tell where she is, but she has been an inspiration to me since the first time I met her. So there's this fast food restaurant about halfway on one of my training rides. In the hot weather of the summer, when building up my mileage, when I was doing the UK end-to-end -end tour training, it's gonna be approximately 900 mile tour, it was a really welcome stop. I would fill up my water bottles and I would toss a buck or two in the tip jar when I had it. They didn't expect it either way. They had an ice machine and a soda fountain that had a little water spigot on it. Most cashiers would say thanks, but most would just wave as if to say that's not necessary. But to me, a hot person, the water was crucial. I could stop at the gas station, but then I'd be buying like two or three plastic water bottles each time. And if I was doing it three or four times a week, it just seemed wasteful. One time I stopped in to fill up. Of course, the lady behind the counter said automatically when I had asked. She was busy with a line of customers. I had a couple of bucks on me that day and not having had any cash the last couple of times, I think I threw like three bucks into the tip jar and went out on my bike. The lady behind the counter exploded out the door. I mean exploded. I thought I had done something wrong. She pushed the money back towards me and proclaimed, you do not need to pay for the water. Water is free, water is life. I was totally stunned at first. I was thinking maybe I'd done something wrong, like I was still in shock. Water is life, she repeated. Everyone should always have water. Food you can go for days, but water, no. You must have water to live. She was so passionate about what she was saying, and loud. I thanked her and rode off, still taking in what had just happened. I don't even remember if she got me to take back the money or not. 
Well, from then on, every time I passed this place, whether I filled up my water bottle or not, I heard her in my head as I passed. I thought about how true it was what she had said, about how lucky I am to have access to clean water and how basic and important it is for everybody. It kind of makes all my other things that I want and all the other problems I had before I started my ride seem trivial. When you realize how lucky you are to have clean water and to be cycling, it's, it's kind of puts things into perspective. So I kept expecting to see her again and talk to her again, but time after time she wasn't there. I figured maybe she changed jobs. Everyone at the place was still very cool with me filling up water bottles and they were all friendly and chill about it, but a couple of years went by. It was two years of hearing water is life every single time I passed this place. It was kind of like a billboard roadside meditation reminder every single time, helping me put my life into perspective at that point on each ride. Finally, a couple of years later, I caught up with her and I told her how what she had said had profoundly affected me. Okay, for me to record you. Oh, I don't want to say my name. Oh, yeah, you can do record, but I don't want to say name. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. So, you said something beautiful to me a couple of years ago and it's always stuck with me. I, I came in and sometimes restaurants will charge you for water. Really? Oh, many times, many times. So as a cyclist, you're out there and they charge you for water or they make you buy something else or something oh, like that. No. So you looked at me and you just said, no, take take as much water anytime you want. Anytime, anytime. And you said water is life. Yeah, and that, is And that ice, stuck with ice. me. That stuck with me for a long time and it made me think about how nice that was of you to say that. Oh. Yeah, no, anytime you need water, you need ice, you need bathroom, anywhere. It should be everybody say, you're okay. Everybody say yes. No question at all. Listen, I believe that. It no should be a human right to Human rights, any. And water, I can say water, ice, this is for any, anything in the world. Everybody needs for their life. Any animal, any anything, anything. They need their life. Why are you gonna, getting angry or mad or something? No. No. How long I'm here? You, you can, I can tell you honestly, anytime you come, doesn't matter, 20 times you come day, you never can see my mad face, never. Thank you very much. It's You're very awesome. kind and it's yeah. very nice. And no, it's... thank you, you too, anytime, doesn't matter, I don't care. This should be everybody do the same way I believe. actually uh, the story of the pig man in my area, which I don't know if you've heard oh, this. I love this. Some of my favorite areas to ride in Vermont are uh, Devil's Wash Bowl, and uh, there's the legend of the pig man. I think it was back in the 60s, so I guess we'd be dealing with pig man's offspring by now, probably. But uh, it's a pig man hybrid that's out in the woods in Devil's Wash Bowl in Vermont, so you gotta be careful of that when you're out riding. Does it make you bike faster? It doesn't, but it makes me look side to side a little more often checking things out, just making sure no one's behind me, you know what I mean? There's definitely a heightened awareness, but yeah. When's the last time somebody saw the big man? There's a, there's, so there's a website, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's uh, Unseen Vermont or something on that. It's all these haunted stories about Vermont, and it talks about, I think there was a sighting, I want to say in the 80s, was one of the last times it was seen. So, yeah, it's a real thing.
<laughs> Freaking love that. <laughs> Has nothing to do with bikes, but no, it I does. do ride my bike through there. Does. Riding a bike through the woods, seeing a ping band, totally mainstream <laughs> for my show. <laughs> that's really cool. Dude, that's the best bike ride right out there. You see some interesting things. My name is Ben Gothier uh, from Vermont, and I host the Behind the Handlebars podcast with my brother, Zach. He's the goofball. I'm kind of the straight guy. We're uh, based out of central Vermont, and we just love to ride bikes with people and share bike stories and inspire people to get out and ride bikes. And you can find us online at BehindTheHandlebarsPodcast.com or on Instagram at BTHPodcast. that wraps it up for episode 27 of the bike karma bicycle podcast thanks for coming along for the ride like to thank the band mob jack for opening and closing theme music keller glass and mob jack great band check them out like we'd like to thank nicole marie davidson for sharing her story and the story of tom simpson like to thank ben from behind the handlebars podcast and I'd also like to thank the lady who wished to remain anonymous, who showed me her generosity of heart with Everyone Deserves Water. Also like to thank for following Crook Todd, JW4580, Albacore1401, PBGA3022D6, Jam Toothy, M. Kozek, Walkover91, and all the other people who've signed up, downloaded, shared with friends, and all that other good stuff. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot to everybody waiting in the queue for their interviews and segments. I appreciate your patience. It takes a lot of time to put a lot of love into each episode. If you know Oprah or anyone in Greenland, please tell them about the show. And if you think you have a company that would be a good fit for the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast, boy, have I got a deal for you. DM me for details. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyrights, trademarks, and all that stuff, are reserved. Hey, Taryn. Yeah? Got a lot of new listeners this month. Guess what I don't want to do? Lose them. <laughs> How would I lose them? <laughs> By not doing your ABC quick check. That's right. They should do their ABC quick checks, where they check their air brake, chain line, their quick releases, because who knows what happens in between rides. And then they also do a general check around of the bike before they take off. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> hey, what should they do until next time, Taryn? Wait, I'm thinking. You have any clues? What <laughs> they should do? I got it, I got it. Keep it real!